Let's pray together. Oh God, unbounded grace, amazing grace, how very grateful we are. Penetrate, please, our callous minds. And let us see how amazing, amazing you truly are through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. I know a father and a mother who are estranged from their child. And it is a sad story. And everybody who knows the family aches with them. Irreconcilable. Never used to be in the dictionary of heaven until Lucifer and sin and you and me. Irreconcilable differences. That's what I heard the other day as the reason for their divorce. Another family. More heartache. So here's the question. What is it going to take for God to heal our, our irre, irreconcilable differences with Him and our irreconcilable differences with each other. What's it going to take? Brood with me for a moment. On an ancient word that offers, I believe, today a promise for our healing. We can be healed of our irreconcilable differences. Open your Bible with me, please, to the second book of Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Little two part mini series, spring break version. Pastor Esther took us in a very helpful sermon last Sabbath, introduced this passage. Now I get to come and go back to it with you. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Verse 14, I'm going to be in the NIV. You, you really need to follow this, and so grab the Pew Bible in front of you. Don't, don't be hesitant at all. It's page 779 in the Pew Bible, so just grab that and follow along, please. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14, For Christ's love, I like the New King James, for the love of Christ. Put it on the screen. For Christ's love compels us. Because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. I tell you what, that's an intriguing word. For Christ's love compels us. That is an intriguing word. The Greek word is suneko. Suneko. Let me just share with you. By the way, those of, you, those of you who are joining us uh, right now on television, we're glad you're here. I want you to see this list of, uh, list of translations. It's in the study guide today, only the study guide, you don't have to fill it in, so don't scramble like, oh, I've got to get it right now. But it's there. If you want to pull it out, you may. Let me put the website up on the screen for you. Uh, those of you who are watching right now, www.pmchurch.tv. You go to that website. You're looking for this little 
standalone, Primer on the Cross for the Love of Christ. For the Love of Christ. Primer on the Cross. Click on there, a study guide. You'll have these uh, quotations. This is just a little something, a, a keeper for you. Isn't this intriguing how these various translations render the, the Greek word echo? Let's put the, the basic Bible in English. Basic Bible in English. For the love of Christ is moving us. Here comes the New American Standard and the English Standard. And the New Living, by the way. For the love of Christ controls us. And I love the uh, New Jerusalem Bible. For the love of Christ overwhelms us. About the NRSV, New Revised. For the love of Christ urges us on. And those of you that have that old King James, for the love of Christ constraineth us. But then you can't... Eugene Peterson, in a, in a league of his own, in the message rendition, put it on the screen for you. Christ's love has moved me to such extremes, His love has the first and last word in everything we do. King James, uh, New King James, NIV. For the love of Christ compels us. Soon echo. I've got to tell you, Dr. Luke is obviously very fond of this word. He uses it more than anybody else in the New Testament. Let me just give you three examples of where he uses it. So you get a feel for what does this mean, this love that compels us. Example number one. You remember the story well. Early in the morning. They've just made the cross-Galilee journey. The little fishing skiff crunches onto that rocky shore of Capernaum. Jesus and the twelve disembark crowd immediately gathers wherever Jesus goes. You remember the story. And then, I tell you what, as a daddy, my heart is always torn at this moment in the story when out of breath, face, panicked, the ruler of the synagogue, the father, what's his name? Jairus, out of breath, come, my little girl, she's dying. If you come quickly, you can save her. Jesus quickly changes his direction, follows the 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 desperate father. But the crowd, the crowd is moving so slow by divine providence because that slow-moving crowd gives the opportunity for this anemic and emaciated woman who for 12 years has been hemorrhaging with no relief from any physician. Dr. Luke will not put that item in because he's a physician. Mark puts that item in. She went to doctor, spent all her money, and never got better. Luke leaves that out very kindly for his profession. Spent everything she's had. She's only growing worse. And you remember her, her, her faith packed with God. If I can just touch the hem of His garments, heal me. Heal me, O God of Israel. She touches Him. And Jesus stops. He stops in that crowd, looking at no one in particular. He asks out loud, Whoa, who touched me? And Peter, God bless him, Ever the man who speaks the obvious. Peter shoots off at the mouth. Lord, you are, you are crushed by this crowd and you want to know who touched you? Let's find out. Eeny, meeny, miny, mo, who touched him? That word of Peter's, you are crushed by this crowd. Soon echo. For the love of Christ crushes us. Crushes, pushes in on every side. We're bound in, can't go forward, can't go back, can't go sideways. Love of Christ, crushing me. Same word. Luke loves that word. He uses it again. That was beautiful, that uh, children's hymn we sang. I am going to Calvary. Surrounded by the cruel guards. We sang that in, what was it, stanza two or three. Surrounded by the cruel guards. Luke grabs that word, sticks it in there. Their divine prisoner, abused with their spit. 
and they're blasphemy. But Luke uses the word, they have surrounded him and are holding him tight. For the love, suneco, for the love of Christ, surrounds me and holds me tight. There's one more use. He uses it other places, but one more I want to draw to your attention. This is that unforgettable moment. He's on trial for his life. He can tell at this point in the trial, his defense is doomed. There's nothing he can say now. He'll become the first Christian martyr. Stephen's trial. He sees it written, etched in the angry faces of the Sanhedrin. And so suddenly he stops and he looks up into the heavens and he says, I can see the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And when his eyes come back down, the record reads, with furious rage, they stopped their ears. Soon echo. They pressed their hands against their ears. I don't want to hear another word for the love of Christ presses us. Presses us tight. Isn't that something? What a verse. Read it again, verse 14. For Christ's love compels us. Because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. Calvary. Unmistakable. The cross. Where the incarnated God of the universe died for every rebel man, every rebel woman, every rebel child who had ever lived or who would ever, ever, ever live, taking in you and me. One died for all the rebel human race. By the way, that's the gospel. In that one line is the everlasting gospel. It is the truth that at Calvary, like Abraham Lincoln in 1863, when he signed the Emancipation Proclamation and declared every slave in bondage now set free, that's what God did at Calvary. Every sinner in bondage now set free. Charges dropped. You are acquitted. If you come home, you may come home right now. That's what happened. For the love of Christ compels us because we are convinced One died for all, and therefore all have died. In that supreme death, and here is Paul's exclamatory point, in that supreme death, we are given a glimpse of the compelling, crushing, surrounding, won't let you go, love of Christ. Isn't that amazing? Amazing. Vesna got it right. Amazing. Unbounded. Amazing. And by the way, Paul says, I I need you to know this. He writes, not only the love of Christ, but the love of the Father. That's what verse 19 is all about. I want you to know that the Father is a part of this. Look Look at verse 19. How does he put it here? That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ. The NKG has it right. Puts the four words in the Greek in the same order in the English. God was in Christ. God was in Christ. God was in Christ. Reconciling the world to himself, not counting their sins against them. God was in Christ. You know why Paul is so insistent we catch this? Because the mighty apostle would not have his readers mistakenly conclude that it is, that it is Christ who loves us and the Father who begrudgingly forgives us. All right, all right, all right. I'll, I'll take them back now that, you, now that you've gone to those lengths. No, 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 no. God was in Christ. As surely as Abraham and Isaac were standing there together atop the same Mount Moriah. Remember Abraham and Isaac? What was the whole point of that? What was the whole point besides testing his faith? It was a panoramic vista. 
the very character of Almighty God, who would give His own Son one day. Only He wouldn't stop the knife coming down. No, no hand to stop it at Calvary. One knife, two broken hearts. One knife, two broken hearts at Calvary. God was in Christ. A century ago, these sentences... That's why I wanted you to have this. You'll hang on to these. Look at this. You have it in your study guide. I'll put it on the screen for you. The little little classic. The Christian classic, Steps to Christ. 130 languages translated this book. By the way, you're watching on television right now. Go to our website. Get you a free copy of the book. You just see where the box is. You sign on there. You get a free copy of that book. Steps to Christ, page 13. Put it on the screen, please. God suffered with His Son. Not something the Father suffered with His Son. In the agony of Gethsemane, The death of Calvary, the heart of infinite love, paid the price of our redemption. Wow. And then her magnum opus, desire of ages, and the life of Jesus. Look at this, put it on the screen. He, the Father, sacrificed Himself in Christ. That apocalyptic classic, great controversy. Put that on the screen. The love of the Father, no less than of the Son, is the fountain of salvation for the lost race. But here's the clincher. I get this magazine every month, by the way. This magazine comes to my house every single month. It's a great magazine. You ought to subscribe to it. It's called Signs of the Times. This is back in, what's the date on this one? March 26, 1894. Look at this. God Himself was crucified with Christ. Isn't that amazing? God was in Christ. No wonder John Austin Baker could write, The crucified Jesus is the only accurate picture of God the world has ever seen. Nowhere else in time, nowhere else in the universe, but at the cross. But at the cross, the character of God in all you know, we had, some, we had some mist on the ground this, this last week. I go out running about 6.30 every morning. So we had some mist. So I have to run because we're on daylight savings now, so I have to pull the flashlight back out. But you know that that mist lies close to the ground out where we live, maybe where you live as well. That mist hovering over the ground. But when the rising sun begins to, with its knife-sharpened ray, cut the mist, dissipates only at Calvary. The mist of our misapprehension, only at Calvary does that blazing sun cut away the mist and we see the truth about God. There's no clear revelation of God anywhere on earth, ladies and gentlemen, anywhere in history. God was in Christ at the cross. At the cross, God was in Christ. Read the whole verse. This gets even more stunning. Watch this, verse 19. God was reconciling the world to Himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And, hold on, He has committed to us the message of reconciliation. Now, I need you to follow this line of thinking. See if I'm right on this. I'm just going to kind of string you along with a series of uh, phrases here, but please help me to know, is this a right conclusion? Apparently. So I'm I'm going to begin with the word apparently. Apparently, when the immensity, when the immensity of divine love dawns upon the human mind, and by the way, who among us can possibly fathom the utter immensity of God's love unveiled like the blazing sun at Calvary? We can't. I understand it. We can't. But apparently, when the immensity begins to dawn, 
And we can only faintly comprehend it, dimly perceive the divine revelation at the cross. Now, hold on. Apparently, follow me, apparently the measure of divine love that we do perceive, whatever gets through, the measure, that ray that breaks through, is enough to draw us into that love so that we are surrounded by it, we are hemmed in by it, we are crushed by it, we are held tightly by it. We are so drawn into that love at Calvary that apparently, apparently, there is sufficient love there to transform you and me into human agents of change on behalf of that love. Apparently. Read it again. Verse 19. God was reconciling the world to Himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And He's committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore, hold on, we are therefore Christ's ambassadors. Mercy. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making His appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Does that startle you like it startles me? Apparently, whatever the measure of divine love that penetrates your heart when you come to the cross and brood over that love, there's enough that is transformative. It changes me into a change agent for Him. I'm going to tell you. I read verse 20 again. I'm going to tell you, I don't think the verse should end the way it does. If I were writing the verse, I would have written it the other way. See what you think. This is verse 20. We'll read it again. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making His appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to whom? What does your say? Be reconciled to whom? To God. If I were writing this, I'd say, hey, wait, wait, Paul. No. You're supposed to write, be reconciled to each other. I mean, isn't that half of our problem as human beings? We have irreconcilable differences. Our earthly nature is such that it is our irreconcilable difference that is the wall between us and so many. Isn't that our human problem? You know those parents we referred to at the beginning and their child, they're estranged now? What's the problem? They need reconciliation. You know that marriage that now has declared that it's over because of irreconcilable differences? What's the problem? Reconciliation. No, Paul says, that's not it at all. Our message is one. Be reconciled, not to each other, but be reconciled. We implore you. We beg you. By the way, isn't that something? Talking about intensity. You could have said, listen, we ask you. We make this a request. Would you mind doing this? We implore you. Be reconciled to God. To God. To God. Apparently, human reconciliation is triggered only by divine reconciliation. No human divine connection. No human-human reconciliation. Until I'm reconciled to God, I will never be truly and fully reconciled to you. Now, hold on. Now, just hang, hang with me just for a moment. That must mean, wouldn't you agree? That must mean that much of what, listen, what, much of what I call my irreconcilable differences with you are actually symptomatic of irreconcilable differences I have with God. 
the irreconcilable differences that really aren't irreconcilable with Him at all. Why? Because God was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself. God somehow took down the wall. And if God can take down the wall of my irreconcilable differences with Him, then does that not mean that He could come into the wall that I have built up between you and me and He can help me take that wall down between us and no longer are they irreconcilable differences anymore. I have to go to Him. That's where the irreconcilable differences are removed. Then I turn to you. There's no wall between me and God now. Why should there be a wall between me and you? That's it. Paul doesn't say be reconciled to each other. He says, no, 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 no. When you go to Calvary, be reconciled with God. There are the irreconcilable differences that are obviously triggering your human differences. Get rid of these and let God make you an agent, a change agent for reconciling love. Am I reading something into this text? Is this illogical? Are we forcing the text to a conclusion unwarranted? I've brooded all week on it. I don't believe it is. I believe we can come to that conclusion. No wonder Paul ends the way he does. Verse 21. Be reconciled to God, he says, the last breath in verse 20. Then he says, oh, by the way, God made him. That would be Christ. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. So that in Him, in Christ, this just astounds me that He can write this. So that in Him, in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. Explain that to me, will you? I am so overwhelmed with my own wretched sinfulness that I'm looking at this and saying, it can't be. You can't take a life like mine and turn it into the righteousness of God. You can't do it. I would so conclude, had not Paul written, verse 21, you need to know that I have seen that the Father made Him our sin so that we could become the righteousness of God. That ancient prophet Isaiah 53, verse 6, All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of how many of us? All died. All died. One died for all and all therefore died. God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us so that the irreconcilable differences could be taken away, so that in Christ, you and me and us, we might become the righteousness of God. How could that be, given my life? Paul says, quit trying to figure it out. Accept the gift. Unbounded grace. Unbounded and compelling love. Accept it. I will take your unrighteousness, and I will give you my righteousness. And something transformative happens, ladies and gentlemen, in that compelling of the love of Christ. Something transformative happens and I am changed into a change agent for the love of God. The immensity of God's love compels the intensity of my own. 
the immensity of God's love compels the intensity of our own. Something happens when the love of Christ compels us. Oh, what wondrous love is this, oh my soul, oh my soul, what wondrous love is this. I want to sing that, that testimony with you. It's beautiful. We'll put it over the words of the, over the picture of the cross. I'll we'll put the words over the picture of the cross. And I'd like to invite you to stand because I think when we stand, we're a little more alert to what it is we're singing. I want to invite you to stand. I wish you would wrap, if your mind is as feeble as mine, just, just wrap that humble mind around this love that we have come to brew today, this compelling love. Put the words on the screen and let's sing and testify to that love.